here to talk about the administrative state and um, might as well just state at the outset we're not going to be able to just toss it out. We, we shouldn't want to. It confers some real benefits. Um, and for all its significant faults, the administrative state did originate in the need to safeguard public interests of paramount importance. So given the public interests underpinning the administrative state, should we have faith in the agencies shouldering what are sometimes immense responsibilities? And I, I think the basic problem here is one of allocation. So which body is better suited to a task? Um, is it the administrative state or Congress or the states or the private sector or some kind of mix or combination of all of the above? And so what I think we need to do is what I like to, to do often, which is to um, draw up a balance sheet of assets and, and debits for each of our governmental um, and institutional entities. And that's what I'd like to do just in a rather summary fashion with the administrative state today. Why is it so important to draw up these balance sheets um, for the Congress and the states and the administrative state? And I think it's important to draw them up because when you do, you begin to look at the exercise of governmental power much more rigorously and more skeptically. And... Um, a balance sheet, I think, will encourage us not to, to, to see seating just reflexively uh, so much authority to the administrative state and to examine more thoroughly whether the um, really a particular matter is best suited to agency capabilities. Now, to justify the administrative state, the um, Proponents um, tried out four virtues or comparative advantages that the administrative state and federal agencies um, have over alternative means of resolving a, a problem. And they say that the administrative state is unparalleled in the expertise that it can bring to a problem, the objectivity that it can bring to a problem, the experience that it brings, and the consistency that it's going to deliver. And as a matter of theory, I think it's these four virtues uh, explain why we have entrusted administrative agencies with discretion to decide important social and economic questions instead of allocating this authority to other more democratically accountable institutions. And what I'd like to, one of the things I'd like to point out today is that each of these virtues of the administrative state um, is, is often very real, um, but in practice it's simultaneously subject to uh, some real caveats. Um, and in achieving public goals, it's not always clear that agencies invariably fare better than the alternatives. Um, probably the most often justification for the administrative state is that agencies are thought 
to possess the expertise necessary to manage these unprecedentedly complex economic, scientific, and technological problems facing our country. And it's, it's very hard to overstate the degree to which this expertise rationale pervades all of administrative law and serves as the touchstones, the touchstone that allocates power between agencies and other institutions. And the expertise rationale has some genuine validity. Um, the complexity of our society is a given. And if we were unable to call upon a significant reservoir of public and private sector expertise to deal with the complexity facing us, the United States would be put at a serious, among other things, at a serious global competitive disadvantage. Uh, I, I think the strength of this expertise justification for the administrative state uh, rises or falls with the need of, ex of agency expertise in the first place. And when you look at the administrative state, what's true for one, for one agency is not necessarily true for all. Um, generalizations break down because the agencies function so differently. <clears throat> As to expertise, it's easy to see why the work of the Environmental Protection Agency requires specialized and scientific knowledge. The agency to regulate effectively uh, must understand the elaborate interlocking workings of myriad ecosystems as well as the environmental impact of industrial waste, uh, pesticides, different forms of development, and many man-made hazards. Uh, the Food and Drug Administration similarly requires a deep knowledge of the human body and the biological effects of the substances we ingest. So we rely upon its expertise to ensure the safety of our food supply and the medications that we take. Uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission it must master cutting-edge development in not just nuclear physics uh, and chemistry, but also medicine and environmental science. Federal Aviation Administration and the National Transportation Safety Board are intended to ensure that our air travel is uneventful. Um, and an equivalent need for expertise uh, with respect applies with respect to agencies that stabilize the economy, such as the SEC and the Federal Reserve. Now, so the expertise rationale for the administrative state is, 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 is absolutely real. It's not something that Congress uh, or the judiciary can replicate. Uh, Congress can't keep up with the uh, rapid changes in technology um, it's just not as an institution designed for that. And the, the courts are generalists. And we can't match the expertise any more than Congress can that the administrative state brings to a problem. So <clears throat> it, it's, uh, it, it, expertise resides in the administrative state because to a considerable extent, other institutions of government are simply not capable of fully replicating it. But it's no guarantee of anything because sometimes the experts get things horribly wrong. And sometimes the need for specialized knowledge within the administrative state is not 
entirely clear. Um, OSHA, for example, may or may not be applying expertise in determining the requirements for workplace safety. And in other areas, expertise may not be as important to the regulatory enterprise. Um, take the EEOC, for example. Must we resort to some form of specialized knowledge in order to determine whether a particular employment practice is discriminatory? Or consider the NLRB. Does identifying coercive management practices require depths of expertise? And given the Federal Trade Commission's orientation toward the ordinary consumer, how much expertise is involved in discerning an unfair or deceptive trade practice? So Congress also um, delegates to administrative agencies for reasons unrelated to expertise. Um, for example, the Base Closing Commission is delegated maybe because of some expertise, but also because Congress didn't want to deal or could not deal with a politically um, hot problem. This isn't to say that all the missions of the lesser expertise agencies, as opposed to the greater expertise agencies, are unimportant. But in some administrative context, specialized knowledge is simply not as critical to the decision-making process and the agency environment. And don't forget that agency environment lacks the democratic input and diverse constituencies that legislative politics affords. So expertise, while a valid justification for the administrative state, can go only so far in justifying it. Um, we need to ask for example, whether we want a standard of exceptional judicial deference to agencies if there's no comparable need for similarly exceptional levels of agency expertise. Well, a second major virtue that's uh, offered for the administrative state is objectivity. And the theory of objectivity is that administrators, unlike elected officials and private sector employees, are going to apply their expertise apolitically. And according to this view, we can trust agencies to examine issues through an impartial lens and resolve problems in our collective best interest, but we can't expect uh, the same from Congress and private companies. Okay, again, it's true, but only up to a point. Um, it's true that elected officials face immense pressure to curry favor with campaign contributors and special interest constituencies whose private aims often collide with the public good. Similarly, private companies typically cannot be trusted to be impartial, at least on issues that implicate their core financial interests. It would be silly, for example, to expect a cigarette manufacturer to assess objectively the health risk of its product or an oil company to deliver wholly disinterested views on various forms of renewable energy. But as with expertise, don't get carried away with it. Don't get carried away with the objectivity rationale because there's reason to claim whether, reason to question whether the claimed impartiality of administrative agencies offers a meaningful improvement over elected officials in the private sector. To begin, as you know, agencies are terribly vulnerable to capture by special interests. 
And this goes way back. For example, the first independent regulatory board, the Interstate Commerce Commission, was criticized throughout the 20th century as bowing and kowtowing to the railroad industry. And I love this quote, the part of wisdom, one lawyer advised a railroad executive in 1892, is not to destroy the commission, but to utilize it. And just as the barnacles of interest group politics attached to our elected representatives through campaign contributions, so do they cling to administrative agencies, albeit in slightly altered form. Regulated entities possess significant lobbying resources, and their lobbying efforts can result in very compromising relationships with agency personnel. And only a naive would believe that interest groups do not attempt to place their own advocates in top bureaucratic positions by influencing the political appointment process. And moreover, agency staff positions attract applicants with an agenda. This is not to say that civil servants aren't dedicated and, or hardworking because so many of them are. And moreover, the agenda that uh, uh, civil servants bring to some agencies is often the product of a very sincere conviction. It's hard to fault people really with strong views on civil rights or the environment or labor unions for seeking out agencies that deal with those subjects. At the same time, however, in light of their pre-existing leanings and perspectives, many civil servants simply cannot be expected to serve with an inhuman detachment. So they have many of the same biases and many of the same preconceptions as their private counterparts. So given these different cross-currents of political influence, we ought to be skeptical about the oft-repeated claim that administrative agencies are purely disinterested decision makers, from the very top officials to the civil servants who staff the ranks of the federal bureaucracy, agencies cannot escape the grasp of politics. And the additional downside is that they elect the electoral accountability that actual political life affords. Now, the third asserted virtue of the administrative state is experience. This is distinct from expertise, which we thought about earlier. Experience is gained through repeated exposure to the same problem day after day, month after month, year after year. So a physician reviewing new drugs at the FDA, for example, has medical expertise before he or she even starts, but you only gain experience after time on the job. Now, agencies can use their experience to reach better outcomes and to regulate more efficiently. Long-time civil servants, people who've worked in government for 20 or 30 years, encounter this same problem day after day. Um, and they draw on their familiarity with the benefits and disadvantages of solutions they've tried before. And this experience allows them to select better solutions and to solve problems faster than anyone could with expertise alone. So uh, agencies don't need to, because of their experience, they don't need to reinvent the wheel um, every time out. And in that sense, agencies can act, actually save one money and, uh, because they don't need to reinvent a problem every time out. Um, for many reasons, 
uh, the pending loss of experience and the mass departure of longtime government workers in their 50s and 60s threatens a serious depletion of talent and experience within the administrative ranks. But there are downsides to experience, just as there were with objectivity and just as there were with um, expertise. Again, it's a virtue of the administrative state, a legitimate one, but only up to a point. A familiarity with a problem leads to complacency. And an experienced civil servant might choose one solution because he or she has always done so, not because it's necessarily the best option. For instance, the FDA has been criticized for demanding large, placebo-controlled clinical trials. And this fixation on re requiring one type of clinical trial can prevent drugs in treat intended to treat rare diseases for which a large clinical trial may be impractical, or drugs from small biotech companies who may not be able to afford a large clinical trial. And these drugs are often prevented unfairly from making it to market. The risk of complacency is further aggravated by civil service protections that came about as a wholly admirable attempt to protect the professionalism of the public, public workforce, but have evolved to shield those lacking in competence as well. Agency employees sometimes rise through the ranks simply by doing the minimum knowing they can be fired only for cause. So the combination of experience and risk-averse employees can bring bureaucratic innovations to a halt. An another, a fourth asserted virtue of public administration is its ability to promote consistency. And agencies are supposed to be centralized decision makers, and, they can, and as such, they can create allegedly uniform rules and apply them consistently across the country. Contrast this with the decentralized system of the judicial system, which con may contribute to a lack of uniformity in the corpus juris because it allows courts to render decisions inconsistent with courts in other states and other regions. And consistency is touted as a byproduct of an agency's experience. Specialized agencies encountering the same problems are likely to reach the same outcomes. And civil, surfers, civil servants working from one administration to another can ensure that rules are applied consistently over time, irrespective of the shifts in the political winds. Federal courts, are, uh, on the other hand, are generalist by design, and because we have only episodic uh, uh, encounters with any given subject matter, we can result, that can result in, uh, in, in decisions in tension with earlier decisions even of our own court. But the, as with expertise, objectivity, and experience, the administrative state's capacity to deliver consistent outcomes, either through adjudication or notice and comment rulemaking, is far from perfect. To begin with, many agencies with adjudicative authority have a record of rendering wildly inconsistent decisions. The NLRB, for example, has waffled back and forth on the whole question of whether graduate students should qualify as employees under the National Labor Relations Act. The board first ruled that graduate students were not employees, 
but later reversed course. Only a few years after that, the board reversed course yet again. And this August, the board changed its position a third time, ruling that graduate students count as employees. These outcomes seem to depend on the composition of the board. Democrats have been in control when the board has ruled that graduate students were employees, and Republicans have been in control where it has gone the other way. Now, this example is far from an isolated, uh, an isolated occurrence. Um, an exhaustive study of immigration judges' treatment of asylum applications shows a wealth of divergent outcomes that simply cannot be explained by factual distinctions between the cases. Um, so administrative adjudications have, have not, to put it mildly, created a seamless, coherent body of law. Um, and inconsistency is not just a feature of agency adjudication. Even policies promoted through notice and comment rulemaking have been inconsistent over time. And to take just one example, the Department of Labor's regulations on migrant workers have alternated and uh, swung wildly between favoring, on the one hand, employers seeking less expensive labor, and on the other, employees seeking higher wages. So the consistency of administrative adjudication and rulemaking leaves something to be desired. This doesn't necessarily mean that agencies are less consistent than other uh, institutions. Um, it, it just simply means that there's an ideal of consistency that, like the other virtues of the administrative state, are simply not always realized in practice. And this brings us again to a larger point. None of, the, none of us should swallow the asserted virtues of the administrative state whole. These virtues, while very often valuable and very often real, come with large caveats that even the most ardent exponents of administrative governance should in all candor acknowledge. Now, along with the perceived benefits of the administrative state have come some very large costs, and the most obvious danger of the administrative state is that it combines uh, elements of legislative, executive, and judicial power, and on any one day it can unleash any one of these forms of power, which makes its threat to liberty unique. But I want to put this overarching fear of tyranny aside for just a moment and focus on a few of the more subtle lowercase tyrannies of present administrative practice. Because in their own way, these seemingly petty tyrannies constitute real burdens on American uh, individual Americans and American society as whole. And I see five burdens of administrative practice worth noting very briefly. First, the administrative state regulates in way too much detail. One of the benefits of lawmaking by Congress and state legislatures is that these branches operate at a higher level of generality. Now, legislation, of course, can be highly specific, but the 180,000 pages of the Code of Federal Regulations are far more likely to tackle such questions, granular questions, as to whether the primary sulfur dioxide air quality standard should be changed to 75 parts per billion. Not to be left out, the Department of Labor has also involved, been involved in a back and forth 
excruciatingly microscopic effort to determine whether mortgage loan effort officers qualify as administrative employees under the Fair Labor Standards Act. Now, oftentimes the organic legislation permits, but in no way requires the regulators to direct in such minute detail the lives of those they regulate. In the name of precision, however, the regulators have often stolen the last ounce of residual discretion from the regulated person or enterprise. The stifling detail seems only designed, almost designed to show America beyond the beltway just who's boss. Second, the administrative state often changes its regulations too frequently and too capriciously. And this second burden uh, stems in part from the first burden that administrative regulations are crushingly detailed. It can be tempting to continually tweak detailed regulations to make sure you get them just right. But with each tweak, the regulators change the rules of the game, if ever so slightly. And many people don't like that because although allowance for changes makes agencies less sclerotic and more responsive to the public will, any regulated institution, public or private, absolutely has to have a measure of predictability to plan for the future. And if it's a, a constantly churning regulatory environment, makes medium and long-term business planning very difficult. The frequency with which uh, administrators change the rules is related to the way in which they've changed them. Notice and comment requirements once ensured a modicum of public input into administrative rule changes. But now administrators dodge notice and comment entirely, and they use guidance documents or interpretive rules to make, quote, policy statements that, though not technically binding, might as well be when viewed from the perspective of a regulated party. A third burden of administrative practice is one of an unbearable backlog and delay. This isn't all the fault of administrators by any means. Congress is all too willing to set an ambitious task for administrative agencies, but it's unwilling to budget in a manner that will allow agencies to accomplish them. So you have unfunded mandates and ever-increasing workloads that result. And whatever the cause, agency backlog is a huge problem. In a case the Fourth Circuit heard earlier this year, a hospital complained about de delays in processing its Medicare reimbursement appeals. And the Secretary of Health and Human Services, meanwhile, admitted before the court that the system had a backlog of 800,000 such appeals, which would take more than 10 years to handle at current staffing levels. And unfortunately, this isn't an isolated case. The EEOC has a backlog of 75,000 uninvestigated complaints, and over a million people are awaiting adjudication of their applications for disability benefits before the Social Security Administration. This delay is enhanced by multiple levels of administrative review. Multi-level review may often be beneficial to a claimant, but the trek of, say, a disability claimant 
from a hearing officer to an ALJ to the Social Security Appeals Council to federal court can generate prolonged uncertainty and considerable cost. And delay is one thing, monetary cost or another, and a fourth burden of our administrative state is its huge financial impact on the economy. The 2015 version of the Federal Register was 80,260 pages long. And because of the, to the total use estimates of the total yearly cost of all this regulation of the economy have ranged from 68.5 billion to over 2 trillion annually. I don't know what the true cost of it is, but whatever the true number, it sure is a lot. And while many regulations target pressing social problems, the aim of regulation can't always be precise and perfect. Regulations intended for banks too big to fail sometimes snare smaller banks serving local communities. And regulations meant to ensure that our pharmaceuticals are safe sometimes actually uh, impede their manufacture. So it's important to understand that regulation is not precisely targeted. It's a dragnet, and the cost imposed on unintended uh, targets can be considerable. It's worth remembering, of course, that the, of course, that the cost of regulation include more than just compliance costs on the part of private parties. There are also the immense cost of creating and enforcing so many rules, the cost of supporting the fast federal bureaucracy. Every new administrative position is another salary that must be paid and paid out of the pocket of taxpayers with money now denied to other purpose, purposes. Fifth and finally, any list of bureaucratic woes would be incomplete without one last great ill, that of imperiousness an attitude that can affect anyone entrusted with a little bit of authority. And I, and I've, I mentioned this, not, it's not just unique to agencies, it's, it's true with courts as well, and it's true with the DMV and the IRS and everything else. It's sometimes those on the inside of a bureaucracy can be maddeningly indifferent to the prolonged delays and harassing requests and the effect that those things are having outside or to people outside the bureaucratic walls. Sometimes administrators just jerk people around. And one unfortunate story, the NLRB filed suit against Boeing for locating a jet manufacturing plant in South Carolina rather than in Washington State. The litigation was dropped only after Boeing struck a deal to raise union wages and increase production in Washington. And in a different case, the EEOC filed a lawsuit against a company in which the agency's claims on behalf of 67 employees were dismissed because of a total failure to the EEOC to comply with its statutory duty to investigate them. And the dispute has dragged on for nine years. And the litigation over the attorney's fees will probably be in going, ongoing for another four or five. I don't want to overdo this point. There are so many good pe people of goodwill and exceptional talent within the administrative state. And the administrative state delivers real benefits um, that Congress and the courts cannot regulate, um, cannot, cannot replicate. 
But when you give somebody a hammer, as the saying goes, everything risks becoming a nail. And when a federal, when a federal court orders you to do something you don't like, well, at least the judge was appointed and confirmed. When Congress... Uh, passes a disagreeable law, well, at least the lawmakers were elected. But if mid-level administrators drag people and institutions through a slew of unnecessary muck, the system inculcates cynicism and estranges people from their own government. And to put the point bluntly, Americans too often sense, and rightly so, that the administrative state has become a law unto itself. I want just for about five minutes to leave you with some uh, some final thoughts on this problem. Um, it's there aren't any simple answers. My view on it is nuanced. I recognize the the, the immense value from just the way I go about day to day living, traveling. Um, eating food, driving, um, breathing air. A lot of these things the administrative state has made possible. And alternative forms of adjudication and rulemaking and legislation could not have made possible. Each state government has a huge administrative state of its own. There is simply no way to cope with modernity without expertise that resides in something resembling the administrative state. And all 50 states have come to that recognition. But you can overdo it, and the question comes, you know, how do we, how do we reform it? It's an interesting thing to me. Uh, the administrative state is unique in our government because it grew up and came of age in constitutional silence. The framers never anticipated anything like this, they had an Article I, an Article II, an Article III for each branch of government. There's no Article IV for the administrative state. It just grew not in any, it had no, no legal imprimatur, it grew out of a certain public necessity. Um, and it concerned people because there weren't any classic separation of powers problems within it. But does the fact that it's not explicitly constitutionally authorized means we can just come in with a sweeping pronouncement declaring the whole thing un unconstitutional? No, absolutely not. And that throws the baby out with the bath. And it deprives us of the significant benefits the administrative state delivers. Um, and... It's impractical. Suppose the, court were to, the courts were to decide on separation of powers grounds that large hunks of the administrative state were unconstitutional. Well, so what do we do next? The people, I think, who want to take that kind of drastic step are not thinking in terms of second steps, third steps, fourth steps. What do we replace it with? What do we... and, and the like. So... We don't want to get in, in what simply becomes a struggle of the unaccountables, whether one unaccountable branch, the judiciary, is in a fight with another unaccountable instrument, the administrative state, because that leaves the political branches out in the cold with any kind of political reform. 
and that's not a, a good ideal. Classic Madisonian theory had it that each of the three branches of government were going to be grabbing power and accreting power under themselves. Um, and that we need a system of checks and balances to make sure that no one branch makes off with too much authority. But the interesting thing about the administrative state is that it's grown in part because the traditional branches of our government wanted to relinquish authority. This is Madison in reverse. Um, you can understand the, the, the legislature was only too eager in many instances to get rid of its powers because a lot of the questions were not only the administrative state, or not only because it lacked the, the, the expertise to keep up with these things, but because the administrative state would take the political heat off the legislature. And the, um, um, it, it, it's, it's, it spared Congress from making a great many delicate judgments, so the legislative branch of government was only too happy to engage in large-scale, open-ended delegations to the administrative state where the legislature could claim all sorts of credit off of the preamble and the broad general feel-good statements in a piece of legislation and leave it to the administrative state to deal with the details where, as you know, the devil often is. And the judiciary ceded power, I think, not only through the Chevron standard, but through various deferential uh, standards of review, because it's easier to judge that way. You just sort of say, oh, arbitrary and capricious, substantial evidence. Those are very, uh, those are very deferential standards of review. And it, if carried to a certain extent where there's a reason for deference, okay, I get it. But if if it's carried too far and you just wave a wand and decide the case just because of the presumption embedded in the, in the, in the standard of review, um, it's an encouragement to lazy and sloppy judging where judges are spared the need to actually get into the record and dig into the record and do the hard work that comes with any kind of review. So... You have this administrative state, which has been ceded um, power by the legislature and the and the uh, and the and the courts for reasons of their own, but much of the reform should be directed at, at at Congress and the courts and say reclaim some of these powers, use what's been given you, use what the Constitution has given you. Don't just be gifting it, and uh, but again, that's it, it's. It, it's really counterintuitive from a standpoint of Madisonian theory. The academic case for uh, academic critique of the administrative case has far outpaced the political case for reform of the administrative state. And I have read and listened to many very learned and powerful critiques of the administrative state from in, in academic symposiums. And I think that's essential to sort of see these ideas 
and point out the problems. But just going on the academic case alone, as important as that is, is not going to succeed in meaningful reform um, without a political case to accompany it. Now, businesses, large and small, understand the burdens of the administrative state. They groan under the regulatory burdens. They know that it stifles incentives. They know that it um, in increases costs. They know that it can hold down employment. But the larger political community, the ordinary citizen, doesn't have that same kind of face-to-face -face familiarity that the business community, for example, um, has. Um, and to make headway in reforming this, to, to retain the benefits of administrative governance while lessening the collateral drawbacks, you need to have, the un, you need to have ordinary people appreciate how, what, the, what the drawbacks and costs um, are. But the ordinary American's contact with the administrative state, at least at the federal level, lies chiefly in dealings with the IRS and with Social Security checks. Um, that's how most citizens relate to the administrative state at the federal level. And these perceptions that one gets from the IRS, or maybe let's say a, a negative perception, and the, the perception that one gets from, the, from receiving a Social Security check, which is a positive, at least for me, somebody in my age bracket, um, and these are sort of offsetting perceptions. And, you know, I, I have to fill out my taxes. I don't like it, but I get my check. I do like it. That's the administrative state in, 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 most, in most people's eyes. You know, when you need to somehow people in elected government are going to have to say, look, this is what it means to you. We haven't built the political case. And the other thing that makes it so difficult to reform um, is that there's no one model. All of these agencies function in, in such different ways. Some function through bringing litigation in the federal courts. Some function through adjudication. Some function through rulemaking. Others are prohibited from adjudicating. You, it's so hard to get out because everything functions differently. Why? Because these uh, the, the delegations came at such different time periods in our nation's history, and they, they responded to particular subject matters and to the perceived exigencies of the moment. The NLRB, for example, was, uh, the National Labor Relations Act was passed during the New Deal when Congress and most other people were just enamored of administrative power. But the Civil Rights Act of... 1964, um, the, there was m much of the opposition to it, it, it came from um, those who were scared uh, and really frightened of the kind of power that the NLRB was exercising. And so they uh, delegated significant power to the EEOC, but nowhere near the kind of adjudicative authority that the NLRB um, exercises. The EEOC can't adjudicate cases between private parties. It has enforcement. So what I, I think, just to conclude, 
um, that don't don't ever take this as an as an, an an all or nothing proposition. It comes back to what I've been telling you. Try with every instrument of government to draw up a balance sheet. Know, know what it does well. Know why it's important, and then know what it does poorly. But I think it's necessary at this point with the administrative state that we have a corrective because in theory, the three existing branches of government were all going to combine together to check the administrative state. Um, the executive was going to check the administrative state through its appointment powers, but that has only imperfectly worked out. Congress was going to check the administrative state through its delegation, appropriation, and oversight powers. But that has only imperfectly worked out. The courts, through their power of judicial review, were to check the administrative state. But that check, too, has proven an imperfect one. So because all the checks that were designed have proven so imperfect, the administrative state has been left rather substantially to its own devices. And for all of its benefits, the great casualty of its growth has been democratic governance. And the gap between governor and governed has grown ever wider under the administrative state. And one of the questions is, how do we restore some slight sense of popular sovereignty and popular input into this opaque and complicated administrative world. Well, that's worth many a good discussion, and that's one of the reasons I just want to applaud uh, both the Heritage Foundation and the Journal of Law and Politics for holding the kind of conference that it has, um, that it has today. And I wanna thank you for your interest in what really is a very important topic and thank you for, for giving of your time, I say again, on a Friday um, and, and coming to this discussion today. Thanks for allowing me to share these thoughts. I'll take questions from here. Okay. I think now we're going to, um, I think we'll take, uh, we have about uh, 10 or 15 minutes so we can take questions. So if you raise your hand, we'll get uh, a microphone to you. And while you're formulating uh, your, your questions, let me ask a, a first one, which is that you, um, you diagnosed the problem extremely well. You pointed out that citizens, they, they, the IRS taketh away, the Social Security Administration giveth. Uh, and one reason, I think, why, uh, why the public doesn't get engaged is it, it could be apathy, but it also could be they're just frustrated at no sense of accountability. You've identified how that could be because the legislators want to see delegations so they can say we passed a statute to do good, the administrative agency did bad, so don't look at me, blame them, the executive branch is seeing the judges. How do we get, what, what do we begin to do to get back some sense of accountability? Yeah, well, it, it's, a, it's an excellent question and it's, um, and, um, it's, it's very difficult for, for two reasons. Um, one, absolutely none of the actors in the administrative state was elected to anything. Um, the heads 
of the, the top, very top layer of administrative agencies and captive uh, and, and cabinet departments have been appointed by the president. And that's a very indirect count of accountability. And the vast, vast number of people who are working in this, um, in, in this Leviathan have never been elected to anything, nothing. And the other thing that makes it so hard, I think, is that it, it, one of the instruments of accountability that we have in our society is, is a vigilant press. But that it's, it's too vast to cover. Um, and I have many journalist friends who lament the fact that it's so impenetrable. And so I wish that we had more journalistic resources devoted to things that, that would um, enable us to detect administrative screw-ups uh, before they get going too far and before they visit very unhappy unhappy consequences. So in, increased coverage um, is, is uh, one thing. Uh, the other thing is that the increased coverage tries to get at accountability from the outside. So how do you get it to accountability from the inside? Well, you pass all kinds of protections for whistleblowers um, and for people who <clears throat> bring problems in administrative practice. We give them all kinds of statutory um, uh, protections and, and we prohibit any kind of retaliation against them for bringing um, criticism of management practices and administrative foul-ups to public view. But there's another problem with, with that, and that is it takes a heck of a lot of courage to be a whistleblower because the people that are supervising you will let you blow your whistle, and, but they'll wait you out. And, you know, uh, six months after all the brouhaha has passed, um, if you blow a whistle on somebody and criticize your superiors, you're, you're a marked individual within, within the agency. So increased press scrutiny, I, uh, that, that might help. Uh, whistleblower protection, um, that might help. But a, a lot of the a lot of the impetus is going to have to come from Congress with 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 narrower delegations, more precise delegations, uh, delegations which allow um, regulated parties which put forth lots of goals, but allow them to meet goals in their own way, rather than what so much the administrative state does is it, Congress supplies the ends and the administrative state provides the means. And so, but Congress can allow a variety of means to achieve statutory ends. Right now, it's rather like dictation. Um, 
maybe some of these authorities, the administrative state has grown along with federal power that has grown. And maybe some of the, uh, maybe some of the answer lies in trying to devolve power and having the state governments have a greater um, say with that. Maybe some of the answer lies in, in, in having more generous awards of attorney's fees for those who successfully challenge administrative um, actions. Uh, I think a part of the answer lies, you don't need to necessarily throw out the Chevron test, but its touchstone in, in step two is one of reasonableness. Well, that gives courts, reasonableness gives courts a lot of leeway to say, even under Chevron step two, that this is not reasonable um, agency behavior. So what it's, what it's going to do is it's going to have to involve a multi-front effort. No one person, no one branch of government, no one instrument uh, can do it. The, the, uh, part of the, another part of the problem, I think, is that the, the executive branch looks upon the administrative state as a way to circumvent Congress when, when Congress gets too pesky. And it doesn't, the, the presidents get frustrated with bicameralism and they get frustrated with the political process and the part of Congress. So they go out so many things through executive order now. All right. There are two checks on those executive orders. One could, would be Congress, which would say, no, this isn't going to work. And a court saying, no, the executive order simply circumvents legislative, um, simply circumvents legislative instructions. So Trying to curb executive orders will, will help to curb the executive's fondness and, and addiction to the administrative state. So I can think of, of the six or seven ways that we can go about this, but you can't, no one way is going to do it by it itself. It's got to be a combination of all of the above, and it's got to be done in a way that makes a political case, and it's got to be done in a way that recognizes the goods that the administrative state delivers and doesn't just go at it with a, a buzzsaw. So that's about, you know, if I had a silver bullet, gosh knows, I would, I would, I would tell you, it is a hard, tough task.